Hello, this is Father Gregory, an assistant director for the Thomistic Institute, coming to you for this most recent installment of Off-Campus Conversations, where we follow up with the Thomistic Institute speaker, chase down some of the insights from the lecture, so that way we can grow uh, in our knowledge and love of God, ultimately, uh, but, you know, practice here soccer doctrina, saving, saving doctrine, uh, in pursuit of a, a richer appreciation and appropriation of the truth. Uh, so for this installment, very delighted to be joined by Professor Matthews Grant. Thanks so much for joining. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, so folks will, m many folks will be uh, familiar with you, with your work uh, from various lectures and publications. But for those who don't know you, would you say just a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Yeah, I, so I teach in the philosophy department at University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. There are two St. Thomases, one one up in Minnesota and one down in Texas, and so I'm on the northern half, even though I I grew up in the in the south, um, in Atlanta, Georgia. So, um, and I don't know. Um, I I work on uh, questions in philosophy of God, philosophy of religion, from a, a Thomistic perspective, but uh, most of my work engages uh, contemporary philosophers who may be coming from all different sorts of perspectives and some of the problems and issues that they that they work on, I I try to um, to weigh in on. So nice. When you or if you make your way back to Atlanta with some frequency, does Atlanta still feel like the South, uh, or has it begun to I don't know drift in the direction of indistinguishably American slash Mid Atlantic? I, I think it's it feels less and less like the South, but I but it still does have you know some Southern culture. You can tell there's a difference between being you know the feel there and uh, and and in Minnesota for sure. Um, but it's what I've noticed most over the years is it's just gotten grown and grown and grown to the point where it almost it seems out of control. Just you can hardly drive anywhere without being in a traffic jam almost any time of, of day. And it wasn't like that when I was growing up there, um, but it, it is uh, now. But, you know, still a good place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people come with drawbacks. What would you say is the more nice region or the nicer region, uh, Minnesota or Georgia? Oh, gosh. Ni nicer people? That they're, you know, there are different kinds of nice. You know, we have a phrase in Minnesota. We, Minnesota nice is actually describes something, and I'm not sure... It's a little hard to say what it describes. Um, <laughs> I think uh, people in Minnesota tend to be very nice. People in, in Georgia tend to be nice. I think the ones in Georgia and down uh, south uh, generally maybe a little more outgoing, um, and in Minnesota a little more uh, reserved, but but both uh, pretty friendly. Um, All right. Why choose when you could affirm both? Um, so apropos of things not nice, uh, you've done a lot of work on evil. Uh, and you approach it from various vantage points. Um, so kind of like evil in say or evil in human action, the possibility of evil in human action, the nature of evil in human action. I realize that I'm being somewhat imprecise in a couple of these formulations or like the kind of threat that evil poses for belief in God, things along those lines. So I thought maybe we could just talk a little bit about evil, hopefully avoid it in practice whilst understanding something of it. In theory, uh, what what would you think is a good kind of working definition of evil, whether taken from the tradition or cobbled together from various helpful insights? How do you typically broach the question, you know, with your students or in an academic presentation? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I do have a, a pretty traditional view of, of evil where I understand it to be a, a privation of good, so a lack of, of good that a thing ought to have. Um, and it, it, so it's, evil is always uh, something that is uh, affecting a, a subject which is in itself good, but, but is deprived in some way, not, maybe not as good as it ought, it ought to be. Um, given its nature or, or purpose or something like that. And um, I think that goes for, you know, you can think of, of both sort of natural evil that way, and you can also think of, of moral evil that way. Um, and so I think it's a, kind of a broad way of, of understanding, you might say that sort of the, the broad ontology or metaphysics of evil. Um, it doesn't understand evil to be actually a, 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 a being or an entity, but actually the, the lack of some entity, the lack of some perfection. Yeah. I, I suspect the folks have an easier time understanding uh, physical evil or natural evil in the sense that like, yeah, clearly this mammal should be able to see, but it's blind. And we would say that's an evil or clearly, um, you know, like this planet ought to be an oblate spheroid, but because it was crashed into by an asteroid. You know, now it has a big pockmark. We would recognize that as a kind of evil. I think people have greater difficulty recognizing like what's evil about moral evil, at least in metaphysical terms. Um, and so we'll sometimes use like a lack of due order or a lack of due proportion or a lack of due, like a lack of due various things. Can you maybe describe that, whether by analogy to physical or natural evil or whether on its own terms, what's distinctive about this type of evil? Yeah. So if, if the privation account is going to hold for moral evil, then we're going to have to understand it as a lack of some sort. Um, and all those ways that you described it would be ways of, of doing so. Um, uh, I, I guess I, I'd like to kind of put it as a lack of conformity to the moral standard. You know, think of, of it that way. Um, so and it's something that you, you would af would uh, affect or, or vitiate um, an action, which is. Uh, not a mere lack, but a, a kind of a positive operation, a kind, a, a kind, a being of some sort, um, but a being that can lack uh, the conformity to the moral standard that it that it ought to have, and the and when it does so, then it's a it's a a morally bad act or a, a sinful act. Okay, um, so obviously we're not going to bring everybody along in the conversation because people are going to want to get off at various way stations, and I think this is one of those way stations. When you talk about a moral standard, there's an understanding there of perhaps natures and the types of activities or operations which are proportionate to natures and the type of activities and operations which are not proportionate to natures. I think that, you know, like natural law argumentation, people will say, has fallen on hard times. What are the types of like arguments or even rhetorical strategies that you deploy to try to help people to see this or to try to help people to kind of grasp what it is that you're describing when you talk about nonconformity to a moral standard? I mean, the, the first thing I would say is, um, you know, whatever you, whatever you take the moral standard to be, right, if we're just thinking about uh, a privation account of moral evil, whatever that moral standard is, uh, whatever you think the best candidate for the moral standard is, um, what it's going to be for uh, 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 a morally bad act is going to be an act that lacks conformity to that standard. Now, and then the, you know, the debate could go in a direction of, or there could be further inquiry about of what the standard is. And so um, there, I mean, I would be attracted to 
to nature as a, as a standard um, to um, at least as a, a kind of approximate <laughs> standard. Um, if we could go to sort of an ultimate standard, we would, we would you know, need to, to go further than that probably uh, in, in the direction of, of God. But you could you could talk about nature as a, as a standard, but but for somebody who wants to you know who recognizes some other moral standard, I think you could still think of, of moral evil as a as a privation of conformity to that standard. Okay. Um. So I guess my next question would be like, do you need a lawgiver uh, for this type of kind of vision, as it were, to obtain? Um, because it seems like you know the moral standard is proportionate to the kind of unity or union or like the community or communion. Um, and what do I mean by this? Well, like sometimes people will describe their sin as like not being true to themselves or not being authentic or genuine in some way, shape, or form. So they have a sense that they ought to be some way, but they weren't that way. Um, now, yeah, how they construe that particular sin. It just varies according to time and place and circumstance. But and then you'll have another kind of acceptation where you you might prove yourself unfaithful in a relationship, or you might lie, or cheat, or steal, or manipulate, or control in a way that doesn't respect the other person or doesn't respect the relationship which you and the other person take to obtain. And then, like with respect to God, obviously the stakes are higher—not just higher in the sense of like ratcheted up the same spectrum, but you know, a transcendent standard or a transcendent norm insofar as he is the origin and end of all created goods, uh, and thus, you know, by nature, by right, can dictate the terms according to which they unfold. So, um, like how, I think there are just a, like a lot of people in the world who will admit of no alien claim or admit of no, you know, transcendent standard. They're really only concerned with themselves. I mean, like, are they, are they even able to recognize sin or does it really like does it rely upon a lawgiver does it rely upon some kind of transcendent norm i mean i think you're going to need some kind of a, a objective moral standard in order to recognize something like like sin or even just more, more you know moral wrongdoing um it, it seems to me that you the more plausible <laughs> standards uh ultimately sort of point in the direction ultimately of of, of god of a transcendent source. Um, but I don't know that you have to, I mean, that's a kind of further argument. So you might, you might recognize something like nature as a, as a standard of morality. And so two people might agree on that and then have a further debate about whether or not in order to make sense of nature, the standard of morality, you ultimately, it ultimately has to have its source in something like the divine mind. Um, and part of that debate is going to have to do with uh, whether you know, in order for the for nature to be a standard, you know, for instance, do you have to understand uh, natures in, in a teleological fashion? Do you have to understand them as having uh, a purpose, an inbuilt purpose, uh, or inbuilt meaning, if you will? And then, if they do have an inbuilt purpose or inbuilt meaning, uh, can you make sense of that uh, apart from uh, 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 a mind, a divine mind of some sort that is the the source of their purpose and their meaning? And you could imagine uh, people who agree on nature as a moral standard disagreeing about that second question: whether you need to make sense of it in terms of a divine, of a divine mind. Okay, so then let's turn to sin in say, um, specifically, like what is it? And um, so we've said that 
evil represents a kind of privation of the good. We've distinguished between physical or sometimes called natural evil and then moral. Uh, yeah, moral evil, I suppose. Um, but, but when it comes to the actual act, like when one posits an act uh, which, to which moral evil attaches, like the question is, what, what exactly is going on? Because you have various voices in the tradition which take a good hard look at that and say, I don't really know what's going on. I'm thinking especially of St. Augustine in the Confessions. I think it's in Book 4 when he describes his motivation for taking the pears, even though he didn't delight in their taste, he didn't delight in their, their appearance, he wasn't actually hungry, maybe it was because of his fell fellowship, but at the end of the day, he can't quite account for what's going on there. So maybe, um, could you shed some light on the choice? Like, what, what's the type of causality which is at work in a sinful action or in an action to which moral evil attaches? Sure, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think we're motivated by something that attracts us, you know, something that we judge to be good, whether it's good or not. Uh, and we can sometimes act for some end that we think is good uh, in a way where, where the action still lacks conformity to, to the moral standard. So, you know, theft lacks conformity to, to the moral standard. It lacks conformity to justice. Uh, we shouldn't take, you know, what belongs to another. Um, but we can be motivated to do that, as St. Augustine uh, was. Now, he, he struggled with what his motivation was, but I suspect it had something to do with, um, you know, camaraderie, friendship, right? And, and, you know, and enjoying something, uh, you know, uh, with his buddies, an act of sort of, of dare, kind of a perverse act of daring, if you will, um, uh, which which explains uh, why he did what he did. And I, I take it, um, you know, most most uh, sins are, are like this. If we if we scratch enough, we'll see that they uh, have some sense of what the motive is uh, behind it. Yeah. And St. Augustine will add that we can account for the sin kind of in its genealogy or in its development uh, by appeal to ignorance, like we don't wholly know or we don't fully know what it is that we're doing, by appeal to malice, like sometimes we're just hell-bent on twisting the knife or sticking it to the man or whatever else, uh, or weakness, you know, in which concupiscence is kind of tucked away, the sense that because of fell customs or vicious habits or inflamed passions, sometimes our uh, evaluation of what's good and our clinging to that can be off kilter or out of whack. And yet still you have to account for the fact that you posit something which at a certain level you recognize is not for your, you know, most principled good or most orderly good, but is in effect choosing one particular good to the exclusion of other higher yet more excellent particular goods. So, um, like accounting specifically for sin as a kind of self-destruction or sin as a kind of madness, uh, it turns out is is still somewhat difficult. I don't know, like in your own work, in your own academic work, have you identified particular places in which that, that kind of mystery of iniquity lodges in peculiar fashion? Have you kind of chased down insights so as to identify places which you find still especially bewildering or bemusing or, yeah, I don't know where your, your research has led you yeah. on this particular issue. Yeah, I mean, I my research hasn't gotten that much into the, that question. You know, that's a question I've, I've more thought about with respect to my own my own life. You know, my <laughs> own my own uh, sins and failings. Um, now, usually, if I if I reflect enough, I I can I can see what they 
what they were. Uh, now, there are some cases where um, I've wondered, well, did I, did I not know back then that that was wrong or that was a sin? Um, I often, maybe I had, when I reflect back, I had some sense that, that you know, some, something I did was, was wrong, but it was, um, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a very deep sense of, of it. So I think there can be degrees of depth in one's uh, grasp of, of the wrongness of, of certain actions. And um, depending on one's culture, one's environment, it can make it very easy to sort of have a, 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 some, a lot of confusion about about those matters, and and a kind of uh, a, a maybe a weak sense that something is wrong, uh, in which case uh, you're vulnerable then to uh, whatever your your passions happen to be, or whatever it is that's attracting you to the sinful act in that moment. You know, if you don't have a, a very uh, deep grasp of the wrongness of the action, you're that much more vulnerable, you know, as it were, vulnerable to performing the act. Now, I say vulnerable; it makes us it makes it sound like the one who's sinning is a, is a victim there, uh, maybe is, maybe isn't in a way, uh, could be a victim in some ways of, the, of, of, a, of a culture or an environment that hasn't um, formed the person uh, in, the, in the truths of, of, of morality. But we can also be responsible for our own ignorance in these matters. Uh, and so um, there's degrees of culpability for, for morally bad acts, I take it. Uh, and part of that's going to depend on, in cases where we're, our, our moral knowledge was shallow, uh, whether uh, we're at fault for the shallowness of that moral knowledge, whether had we, uh, had we reflected better as we should have, whether we could have known better and therefore acted better. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, then. Um, the, the lecture that we're, that we're following up on in this episode uh, spoke specifically to evil as a kind of threat to the existence of God, perhaps in say, or perhaps our knowledge thereof. And so thinking about the five ways as it appears in the Summa Theologiae, or as they appear in the Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas will cite, you know, two objections which uh, have been well-tread in the tradition, namely that, like, you know, I don't have need of this hypothesis because nature is a sufficient explanatory principle. And then on the other hand, evil would seem to militate against the existence of a God as so described you know, in this theological work or in the Christian tradition more broadly. So what is it about the existence of evil that uh, represents a threat for theism, for theists uh, in this kind of context? Yeah. So I, I think many think that evil is evidence in some way against God's existence, um, uh, where God is, is, uh, is thought, I think, thought rightly to have certain kinds of, of attributes that are, seem to be inconsistent with the, the, the sort of evil we find in the world. Um, and, and the attributes in question are his goodness and his omnipotence. Um, so you might think if God is, if, is good, wholly good, all good, that he would want to eliminate evil as much as he can. Um, evil's bad, right? So a, all good being would try to eliminate evil to the extent that he has power. But if God's all powerful, there really aren't any limits or any non-logical limits to what God can do. So you've got a, a, a God who is supposed to be good and so would have a motive to eliminate all evil and is supposed to be all powerful, right? And so would have the wherewithal to eliminate all evil. But guess what? There's evil. There seems to be lots of it. 
And so uh, that's given, uh, gives some uh, people, people think there's a reason there to uh, doubt God's existence. Okay. So then that, um, I've heard the line of reasoning that you just adopted there uh, described as the atheistic syllogism, and I've, I've seen it formulated by, I think it was it J.L. Mackey? Um, yeah. So when a classic formulation, yeah. Okay. When described in those terms, which of those premises would you attack or quibble with or seek to clarify? And in what particular way? Like, how does this understanding or misunderstanding uh, get God wrong? And then how can we kind of push back against that and help people to see the same? Yeah, I would challenge the, the claim that if God is, is all good, then he would eliminate evil as far as he can. Um, I think that that is a doubt, very doubtful uh, premise. Um, you can understand why someone would think that. Uh, you might, somebody might think, well, isn't that what an all good thing would do is get rid of evil as much as possible. Um, but when you reflect uh, a bit more, um, you realize that it could be the case that um, uh, God really couldn't get rid of uh, uh, all evil without also um, removing certain goods or the possibility for certain goods. And so there might be a reason for God to permit evil in the world for the sake of the goods that, uh, that require that evil or that, uh, that those evils make possible. And I think that's something, something like that is, is at least part of uh, what St. Thomas would say in response uh, to the argument from evil. Okay. Maybe we can ap approach this from the question of physical evil and then moral evil. So with physical evil, we can think of a kind of maybe Buddhist objection as if God were responsible for the minimization of suffering. Um, but it seems like in a universe where you have um, physical things, some of which metabolize other of those physical things for the upbuilding of their own corporeal nature, that um, it's always going to involve, like at least on our present conception of the law of conservation of matter, some breaking down and building up. And then the question is whether it's worth it. Um, so I don't know if you if you have like evidential arguments or particular rhetorical strategies that you employ for showing, you know, that creation is glorious, even as it entails the breaking down and building up uh, for the, for the, like, you know, like the pursuit of corporeal life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lions are amazing things, right? Um, would the world have been better off had God not created lions? You know, or if they had created lions, but, you know, declawed and defanged them or left the claws and fangs in, but somehow ne never, you know, permitted them to sort of do their lion thing. You know, um, it's not obvious to me that that would be uh, that that would be a better world. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think you're I think you're right to to. Uh, to point out that there's certain there's certain kinds of beings that uh, of their very nature are are vulnerable to uh, death, corruption, decay, material things. I guess not all material things are subject to death because, because not all of them are living, but they're all um, material things. You know, by their very nature, are, are subject to corruption and decay. For living material things, that means subject to to death. Um, if they're sentient. 
right? That is, they have, you know, they can, they can feel, they can desire, experience pleasure and pain. Uh, if they're sentient living material beings, then they're, they're subject to, to pleasure and pain. Um, and I think a, a good way to ask the question is not so much would it have been better for God not to have created natural evil, because uh, the real question, uh, the better question would be, would it be better for God not to have created uh, material beings or not to have created uh, sentient uh, material beings? Um, because God really can't create these things or can't create them and let them live in accordance with their good natures uh, without uh, their being uh, being natural evil. I think if, yeah, I think if you put the question that way, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not, the answer isn't so obviously, uh, uh, of course God should not, you know, if you, if you put the question, should God have, um, have, uh, created a world without natural, with, without natural evil, I think a lot of people, their initial response is going to be, yeah, of course. If you say, well, should God have created a, a world without uh, material living creatures or sentient creatures? I think they'll say, well, no, uh, that's not obvious. We at least need to think about that. Yeah. And it helps us to, to refine our understanding of the purpose of creation, because I think often enough, our thoughts run in a kind of workaday rut where we think like, ah, oh, yeah, God created for some use or for some utile purpose. Like we're here as kind of bond servants or vocation slaves. So as, yeah, ultimately to acquit ourselves admirably of whatever holy task is assigned to us. But at the end of the day, that's, I mean, I suppose <laughs> there's a particular vantage point from which something like that is true. But ultimately, God created us because he thought we might like it. You know, God created us for his glory and our salvation to impart the possibility and the reality of a share in his divine life. And so that being the case, right, like, yeah, I mean, there could be better or worse ways of going about it, but I don't think God is so much motivated by a best possible world in the sense of the optimization of the material conditions of the universe in which we find ourselves, because that's not what he's about, right? Um, he's about something different. And, you know, I think a Christian is inclined to say he's about something better, uh, using better there analogically. Um, and yeah, but like to discern that purpose is part of the task of, you know, Christian contemplation, whether of a philosophical or a theological sort. But yeah, I think it's just our, our minds are readily disposed, perhaps by the weight of our post-lapsarian state to just try to find a kind of, yeah, like workaday purpose in the plans of God. When his purposes often defy our workaday explanations in a way that's great. I mean, in a way that <laughs> that invites us further up and further into a participation in his providence. But yeah. Okay, so maybe moving on then from physical evil and turning then to moral evil, this is the harder objection, uh, because in approaching the mystery, you get the distinct impression it, it could have been otherwise, <laughs> uh, which is terrible. Uh, and yet you'll have voices in the tradition like that of St. Augustine who say that God wouldn't permit evil to befall, except he could bring about from it some good. And I think that um, people might recognize this on a literary level or on a poetical level, but they find it difficult to affirm on a philosophical or theological level. Could you lead us through, uh, yeah, the type of work that we need to undertake in order to appreciate what God might be permitting or what God might be doing here in The Permission of Evil? Yeah. We, 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 we don't always uh, see it, but 
yeah, I mean, like St. Thomas will cite that passage, and I take endorse that passage from Augustine that God wouldn't permit any evil unless he uh, that he could wouldn't draw good from or won't draw good from. So, um, you you might think that for for every evil God permits, there will be some good drawn from it. I take it that that's that's a a Christian hope uh, that there that in a way a kind of trust in God that the evils that we find in the world are permitted for some good reason, and the evils that afflict our own lives and the lives of our loved ones are permitted for some good good reason. Uh, so what might they what might those reasons be? Um, in some cases, they might be um, permitted for the sake of the good of, of the whole, in a way, of the good of the, the cosmos. So there might be certain goods that uh, could not be, as it were, realized or instantiated in the cosmos if it weren't for natural evil or moral evil. But we might also think that God permits these for the sake of the, the individual's own good. Um, so uh, suffering, uh, for instance, suffering various kinds of natural evil uh, can uh, direct us in, in various ways uh, towards uh, God. Uh, it, one thing that it helps sort of individually and sort of communally is, is helps us realize that our, um, our happiness is not ultimately to be found in anything short of God. So um, we, we might be, well be tempted to think that if, there, if, uh, if the world weren't a, a veil of tears, as it were, if, the, if there weren't so much suffering in the world, if the, if the world were, were a sunny day at the beach in a hammock, um, we, we might well be tempted to think that this we were in, already in heaven. Um, but in fact, the, the good of a sunny day at the beach in the hammock, as is, is lovely as that is, is far short of what God wants to give us. So, I mean, I'm just using this as an example of the way in which the, the experience of, of evil in the world can be conducive to our own, our own good by directing us towards uh, to our, our, uh, our end in the infinite goodness of God and not uh, so that we'll be less in, inclined to be complacent in the, in the lesser goods of this world that ultimately don't sat, satisfy us completely and which were, were not the goods for which we were created. Um, Similar sorts of things, you know, there are other things one could say, but that's a sort of a for instance. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I suppose then, so so thinking about moral evil uh, and its permission, some people will use this kind of free will defense um, as an argument or otherwise um, to say, well, God, in permitting moral evil, he upholds the good of our freedom. Uh, do you think that's a good strategy? Do you think that's a bad strategy? I know it's contested if you don't feel like uh, inclined to take a stance on it. That's, that's totally fine. But do, I don't know. Do you, do you argue in that vein? Um, I, I don't think it. Well, I think it's a good strategy, uh, but I don't, I don't think it ultimately, I'm inclined to think it's not true <laughs> in the end. <laughs> um, uh, I, because I, I think it's a, it's a good strategy on the assumption that, um, God can't create us and create us uh, free and at the same time uh, act so as to ensure that we always choose the good and never choose evil, right? So if you, if you take that assumption that, that God's creating us with free will rules out uh, God's having, as it were, providence over how we use our freedom, 
then I think the free will defense is a is a is a good uh, is a good uh, response to the problem of moral evil. The thing is, I I think <laughs> I don't agree with that assumption, um, and and so I've got to I've got to say other things. Uh, maybe which many people would think makes makes responding to the problem of moral evil much much more difficult. I think it's not all that much more difficult, but that's a yeah. I think we're so I don't in the end, although I think it's a it's a it's a good answer in the sense of a um, if you accept the assumption behind it, it it makes perfect sense. Um, uh, I don't think the assumption is ultimately right. Gotcha. Then, then maybe to um, follow up on another more contemporary issue. Uh, sometimes you'll hear positions vis-a-vis -vis free will described in various terms or by various handles. Uh, I might be getting this right. I might be getting this wrong. You've got like libertarianism and you've got determinism and you've got something like compatibilism. Um, do you think that that language or the concepts uh, which are conveyed by that language are helpful ways to approach the issue? Or do you find it better to approach the issue with different vocabulary uh, or according to a different grammar? Yeah, I think they are helpful ways of approaching the issue, provided that all the terms are, you know, spelled out and defined, you know, carefully enough. Um, so, so like, I mean, there's a debate, you know, philosophers have debated whether free will is, is compatible with determinism. And uh, some say it is, some say it isn't. And they're usually thinking about determinism by natural prior natural events. Um, but I think there's a kind, you could also think of, about uh, theological determinism. Is there determinism not by prior natural events, but by God, by either, you know, God's, God, just God himself, the divine nature, or by God's causality or by God's will. Um, and it seems to me that uh, you could, you could think about that and that whatever whatever problems that uh, for free will that would be caused by determinism by natural events would seem to carry over in terms of determinism by, uh, by is it divine events. I don't necessarily love the way of, of, of speaking there, but just to, to keep the parallelism. Um, my own view is that God, that our acts, our free acts are caused by God, um, but that, that that does not introduce determinism in the sense of determinism that poses a problem for free will. And so I, I think I have a kind of libertarian sort of intuitions about free will. Free will and determinism are not compatible. Uh, most people who have those intuitions are, uh, have tended to think that that rules out God's being the source and cause of our acts. And, and I think they're wrong on that point, actually, that, that uh, God can be the cause of our acts without rendering them determined in the relevant sense. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's a good kind of final point on which to conclude. Um, this notion that uh, God's causality and our causality don't pertain to the same order, or not, God is not just one cause in and amongst a mess of created causes, that God's uncreated causality, to speak of it in somewhat um, yeah, silly terms. That's probably not how somebody who had thought about it longer and better would, would formulate it. But God's, you know, God's causality uh, is of a different sort 
Um, yeah, might you speak just a little bit about that, uh, how God's causality and our causality interface or relate, for lack of a better term, and how that can help us to gain better appreciation of what God is doing in creation and maybe what we're doing, whether in consenting and cooperating or <laughs> resisting and sinning? Yeah. Well, one, one thing I would say about it is that our, our causality and the causality of all creatures is, is an effect of, of God. So in, among the things that God is bringing about in his, in his causality uh, are creatures that exercise genuine causality, and human, including human beings. And uh, now, in a way that pushes the question back, well, can an effect of can my actions, my free actions, be an effect of God, something that God brings about in his causality and still be free? And so then I think the, that, you know, one will have, it's going to come down to how one understands God's, God's causality. Does one understand God's causality as introducing a kind of uh, necessitating, uh, um, some necessitating element which forces uh, the, the will and, and rules out the possibility of the will to do otherwise? Um, I, think, I, think, uh, I think the answer is no, that God can, can bring about uh, our actions in a way that doesn't remove our ability to do otherwise. Now, how, how that's so is a, is a longer story. You know, there's, some of my work has tried to explain that in, in, in detail, but that's the big picture of what, what I would want to say. Yeah. Yeah, that our being and our causality and the conservation of both our being and our causality is God's gift. I was working on a passage from De Veritate 3.7 for my dissertation specifically about the distinction between like secondary and instrumental causality. And um, yeah, it's an especially beautiful truth, uh, but one that I think many of us find difficult to understand because, uh, yeah, it just falls outside of the bounds of our ordinary like this billiard ball hits that billiard ball understanding of, of how things change or how change is brought about. So it's a, it's a bracing thought. It's a sobering thought to think that God is at work in and through us, that something can be a hundred percent God and a hundred percent us without posing any, yeah, yeah, without posing any real problem. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful though, but it's a, yeah. Some people think it's gobbledygook that they, they hear that and they just think that's how is that possible? Right. They think you can't, the same effect can't be a hundred percent from the creature and a hundred percent from God. Um, but I, but when you ask for the argument that's supposed to show that it can't be, I've yet to see the argument that shows it. Um, yeah. So perhaps there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> there may not be one. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, maybe as a final word, um, I know that you have, you know, a lot of good things happening there at St. Thomas philosophy department, theology department, Catholic studies program. You've got a seminary, all kinds of wonderful things afoot. Could you just describe for our listeners a little bit as to what's, what's going on there? Yeah. A lot of good stuff. I mean, yeah, you, you, you've named a bunch of them. Um, so I just, have been teaching, uh, incoming seminarians at our college seminary, St. John Vianney College Seminary, uh, this semester. Just gave a group of them uh, their final exam this morning, actually. Um, and they're, they're a great, great fun, um, but it's a, it's a thriving uh, college seminary. Um, at one point, it was, I think, the largest college seminary in the country. I don't know if that's still the case. 
uh, they had to intentionally downsize at one point because there were they were overflowing and you know it got to be you know it wasn't as good for community information having people out in all these satellite houses so they're a wonderful group and then a, a strong uh, a major seminary Catholic studies program excellent the philosophy department here uh, my own home department is uh, the, so, so many great colleagues doing uh, great work and and uh, serving uh, the sustaining and developing the Catholic intellectual tradition. So it's a wonderful place. It's a beautiful campus. And um, it's really nice in, you know, late spring or summer. <laughs> <laughs> and if you like, if you like snow uh, and the, the winter too, not that we've had any yet this, this winter, but yeah. Yeah. So come visit. There you go. Or if you just prefer to fly Delta and you can't stand a layover in Detroit, you know, maybe Minneapolis, St. Paul is the place for you to go. Yeah, it's a nice airport. <laughs> it, is, it is not unpleasant. Good. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Turning to the listener, uh, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Off Campus Conversations. If you haven't yet, uh, please do subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast on YouTube or on your podcast app. So that way you can get sweet updates when further things come forth. And uh, yeah, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.